0: Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. For many Christians in our part of the world, here's a summary of what we've heard taught in church about marriage. This is how one author summarized the predominant teaching anyway. That marriage is the normative experience, the desired goal, and the greatest good Of every Christian. Have you been taught that? That sentiment is alive and well, I think. Just last week on my social media feed popped up a clip from a well-known pastor in which he was saying this. He said, a guy who's in his late 20s, early to mid 30s, still doesn't have a woman, still doesn't have children on the horizon, is a very selfish and self-indulgent human being. And that's tame compared to some viral clips I won't share from well-known pastors in recent years about aging single women who are, in the opinion of these men, destined to a life of loneliness. (laughs) But unfortunately, we can't pretend that this is just only a problem out there. There was even a Sunday at North Sub a couple years back during which a young single man and a young married man were invited on stage. The married man was introduced... Uh, followed by a comment about how important it is to have a supportive wife in ministry. Then, turning to the other individual, was noted, "He's single, but we'll work on that." Consider this again, right? Because I think that this is a fair and even-handed description of the recent evangelical consensus: that marriage is the normative experience, desired goal, and greatest good of every Christian. Churches act like this is true. Is it? And when I'm asking that question about whether this is or isn't true, I'm asking it with reference to Scripture. Like, could you open up your Bible and defend all three parts of this? That it's the normative experience of every Christian, the desired goal of every Christian, the greatest good of every Christian? Which of those parts could you defend from Scripture? Any of the three? Today we get a chance to engage the Apostle Paul's words to fellow unmarried folks in the first century Greek city of Corinth. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter seven? It's page 1014 in your chairback Bible. So you wanna be there because it's a long chapter. We're gonna jump around. You wanna take a look at everything that I'm raising here in the context of the actual chapter and be able to check what I'm saying against what you see. This is the same passage we looked at last week. We're now gonna pass over it a second time, this time focusing on the parts addressed to unmarried Christians. Last week was to the married, if you missed that one, you might want to go back and uh, pull it up on our website. Uh, this one's to unmarried Christians. Reminder that we're preaching through 1 Corinthians because our theme or emphasis this fall is our core value of healthy relationships. We're not yet halfway through this letter, 1 Corinthians, but we have been challenged on any number of relationships in our lives. Last week, it was marriage relationships we looked at. This week, unmarried folks are advised on how to handle their relationships. Now. Before the married folks relax in their chairs and pull up their fantasy football rosters right now, reminder that all of scripture is God's word for all of us, right? And let's be real with each other. At least half of us who are now married will once again live an extended season of unmarried life before we die. It's just the reality, right? And we could go beyond that. All of us will spend eternity unmarried, according to Jesus' words in Matthew 22, right? Our only marriage then will be the greater and corporate one in which we all together as the one bride of Christ will no longer experience any exclusive relationship with any fellow mere human who we're in the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, there's a sense in which unmarried folks now experience a foretaste of what's to come for all of us in our horizontal relationships with other believers. And we can all learn from that, right? There's so much here in this chapter, sad we can't go into a ton of depth on all of it, but maybe to billboard what we'll focus on today, we'll explore what Paul has to say to the unmarried on gifts, on distress, and on self-control. Those three topics, gifts, distress, self-control. First on gifts. He believes that singleness and marriage are both gifts. Singleness and marriage are both gifts. Verse seven, I wish that all people where I am, Paul says, But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another that. Remember the guy who's writing this is single, right? The Apostle Paul saying he wishes all people were able to experience what he experiences as a single Christian. I wish all people were as I am. But he acknowledges that each has his own gift from God, implying that Paul sees his singleness somehow as a gift that not everybody has. By process of elimination, those who don't have that gift have a different gift. Namely, marriage, a spouse, which, of course, Paul also considers to be a gift from God, as we see in so many of his other writings. So how then do we evaluate the popular evangelical understanding of the gift of singleness, with quotes around that, that has come into vogue in the last 50 years or so? For those unfamiliar with what that is or how that's usually presented, uh, Danny Trewick summarizes it well, I think. This isn't, this isn't what she believes. This is, she's summarizing the dominant perspective. The dominant contemporary evangelical perspective understands Paul to have been referring in the gift of singleness to a special capacity to remain single bestowed by God on certain individuals. Individuals are thought to be able to identify themselves as having received such a gift via a sense of inner conviction, a lowered sex drive, a particular freedom from distractions and or a generally demonstrated contentedness with what others would find a less than ideal or even less than livable situation. This is the teaching that I grew up with in churches I grew up going to about the gift of singleness. What about you? That it's a rare few that have this gift, right? That if you have the gift, you know you have the gift because it doesn't bother you much if at all to be single or not to have sex. Again, Tariq puts words to what I remember learning growing up in the church, and she's not endorsing this, but she said, a select few, according to this view, are endowed with a kind of supernatural booster shot of extraordinary self-control, lowered libido, and life contentness, which is not generally available to all Christian persons. Question, is this what Paul's talking about in verse 7 of our text? When he says, each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another that. You're probably picking up the "My answer is a resounding "no." I don't know that any of this is from Scripture. For the first several hundred years of church history, nobody read it this way. I'm afraid we made it up. And stick with me here while I reason this out. Just because it's called a gift," verse seven, doesn't mean it's a special ability or a supernatural booster shot, as Treby calls it. Now now some gifts are just that, right? 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to see in a few months, right? That's what those gifts are in 1 Corinthians 12. Some people have the gift of wisdom. Others, the gift of faith. Others, the ability to speak prophetic words. Those are all special abilities that the Lord grants. But think about Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul also lists gifts. But there, the gifts aren't special abilities that are given to individuals. There, in Ephesians 4, the gifts are individual people given to the church, right? God gives as gifts to the church. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists. Those people are the gifts in Ephesians 4. So so we can't just assume, in other words, that every time we read Paul writing about gifts, charismata, right, that he's talking about special abilities. We have to figure out if that's what he's actually saying in a given context, right? So here in the context of 1 Corinthians 7, it certainly seems to me that the gift that Paul is claiming to have is that he's single, Some have that gift, others don't. Which means then that if you're single right now, Paul would have called that a gift that you've been given, at least for the moment. God's giving you the grace to be single, including the grace to remain celibate in your singleness, which is God's calling for all single people. One day he might give you a new grace gift, that of marriage. If he does, he'll need to give you new graces to accompany that new gift. Or maybe you'll have this gift of singleness for the rest of your life, but if God has got you single right now, that's his gift to you. Your sex drive might be off the charts. doesn't change the fact that if you're presently single, God has given you singleness for this season. That singleness requires celibacy, and that's a gift. Your self-control might be sloppy right now. Is that God's fault? Some cast blame that way, right? Like, God, if you'd give me a wife, I wouldn't be committing sexual sin. No? take responsibility. God has given you the gift of singleness for now. And even if you're praying for a spouse, which is great, it's your responsibility to avail yourself in the meantime of the grace given to you by God's indwelling spirit to exercise self-control. And guess what? If you get married, it'll be your responsibility at that time to avail yourself of the grace given to you by God's indwelling spirit to continue to exercise all new sorts of self-control that you never had to exercise while single. So summary of these twin gifts here, this gift, another has that, If you're married, God has given you the gift of marriage, and he has given you the accompanying graces needed to serve him faithfully in that situation. It may not be a forever gift. One of you almost certainly will die first, and then you'll have the gift of singleness again. If you're single, God has given you the gift of singleness, and he has given you the accompanying graces needed to serve him faithfully in that situation. It may not be a forever gift. You may end up married, and then you'll have a different gift. But whichever of those gifts he's given you right now, he has a reason for giving you that gift for this season. And Paul seems cheerfully relaxed about this whole discussion, as one commentator aptly put it. So two gifts, okay? But, but given that singleness and marriage are both gifts, is either supposed to be normative? Is either supposed to be preferable? Let's look at what Paul says, verses 8 and 9. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. That's single. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. In other words, if we're weighing singleness versus marriage, singleness is good. But if you have to get married, you should. Verses 25 to 28. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Again, Paul's like, hey, I think singleness is good. But not wrong to make the other choice. Verses 36 to 38 seem to nudge us in the same direction. If any man thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, if she's getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He's not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who's under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiance, will do well. So then he who marries his fiance does well, but he who does not marry will do better. So, hey, you can get married, but it's good if you don't. Well, then Paul makes the strongest claim he's made yet there at the end, right? He who does not marry does even better. And finally, verses 39 to 40. Wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. means only to a fellow Christian. But she's happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. I don't know if there's another way to summarize all that we just read, except to say a few things. One, both singleness and marriage are good. Two, there's no sin in either choice. Three, we must not denigrate each other's gift or think less of those who don't have the gift that we don't have. Paul does not do that. But if we would try to go beyond that, to try to make the case that marriage should be the default preferred path, as many do. Right? I hope you're seeing here that's really hard to substantiate from Scripture, and particularly from this Scripture. Right? Not only because it gets real awkward to suggest that Jesus and Paul missed out as single people, but also in light of what Paul says here. Right? Think about it again. This is what we started with today. Marriage is the normative experience, desired goal, and greatest good of every Christian. We're evaluating that. When it comes to 1 Corinthians 7, it would be easier to say this about singleness than about marriage now i think it would be an overstatement if we would swap singleness in there to say singleness is the normative experience desired goal and greatest good of every christian paul doesn't go that far but he decisively refutes those who would say this about marriage if you marry good if you don't better that's on these two gifts singleness and marriage now on distress some of the sharp readers here in the room surely have been holding an objection for the last 10 minutes namely Hey, Tim, don't you see Paul's writing all this explicitly because of the present distress, verse 26. So before we go too far in applying this to our present day situation, we've got to figure out what was this present distress. Some commentators say Paul's talking about a temporary crisis that all the Corinthians would have known about. For example, a famine that we know did rock the Roman Empire around this time. In theory, then, once the famine passed, Paul's advice may have changed. Okay, now, you, now go ahead and get married. Okay. And that's possible. But if the Corinthians are under extreme financial stress from a famine, it's a bit odd that we've got this letter, 16 chapters, mostly addressing the church as though they're kind of living very comfortably, overeating at the Lord's Supper, money to spare, right? Other commentators say this present distress is that Paul believes Jesus is about to come back. So on this theory, Paul's saying, well, what's the point of getting married? Any day now, it's all going to be over. But then, was Paul wrong, right? Jesus didn't come back in their lifetimes. And besides, when the New Testament in so many places raises the possibility of a long delay before Christ's return, do we really think Paul was trying to claim certainty here that it's going to be immediate? No. I think there's a better understanding of the present distress. The word distress here... It doesn't have to be a crisis. It can mean like a necessity or a constraint because of the present necessity, because of the present constraint. Uh, And here's how D.A. Carson understands this. He says, hey, look at this text. Because of the present distress, here's what to do. So we say, Paul, we aren't sure we know what you mean by distress. And Paul answers in verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers and sisters. And what does he say he means? He says, hey, the time is limited. That's the present distress, The time is limited. Not necessarily Jesus is gonna come back in our lifetimes, but that we are now living in the as though not period, immediately preceding Christ's return. It extends from Jesus's resurrection ascension to his return. We're in the as though not period. Take a look at all the as though nots here in these verses. Various aspects of life, right? Those who have wives should be, from now on, right, this isn't just during a famine, but from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep, as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice, as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy, as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world, as though they didn't make full use of it, as though not. In other words, the decision about whether or not to marry and any other number of decisions in the Christian life, how to weep, how to rejoice, how to buy stuff, how to understand our ethnic markers back in verses 18 and 19, or our slavery, verses 21 to 23. All those aspects of our lives should be looked at through an as-though-not lens, because time is limited. Not only the marriage decision, but many other decisions should be made in that mindset. Friends, at risk of stating the obvious, we're still in the as though not era today. If time was limited then, how much more now? True? Even if Paul was thinking in part about a famine when he wrote about the distress, don't we have plenty of our own distresses today? We just endured a pandemic. Wars are breaking out everywhere. We lived through recessions. I just got a call this morning about a, a clashing protest that are gonna be happening downtown Northbrook later today. We're gonna keep our kids away from downtown Northbrook, right? Um, the reason that Paul lives to to live as though not is that time is limited. In other words, why get all bent out of shape about I have to get married or I'll be miserable when even if you do get married, you're supposed to be living as though not married. On balance, in light of that, there's something to be said for staying single, Paul says. I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. That's the case he's making, right? Now, let me tell you where I went with this at age 22, okay? And just like last week when I was sharing some things about our marriage, I'm not sharing this to say, hey, this is the way it should look for everybody. I'm sharing it more to say, hey, we've all got to fumble through this together. Uh, Take what you can from a story of one couple kind of fumbling through this. Um, So I'm 22, okay? My dad's told me about this girl. He met her because he was friends with her dad. I've been messaging her now for a few weeks. We've never actually met. I start to feel like I need to send her a letter, like a letter letter, old school. In the letter, I'm basically like, hey, this has been really fun. You seem really great. But i got to tell you something. Now, she's 19 at this point, just finished her freshman year of college. I'm like, listen, i got to tell people about Jesus. I need to follow him wherever he leads. And that may very well land me in a prison cell in Saudi Arabia. These are actual words from my letter. Not sure it's going to be a good idea for me to invite any woman into that life. It's probably best for me not to get married. Just need you to know that up front. My reasoning was, hey, time of distress. You don't really want to be putting a wife and kids through that, sweating it out while you're in jail. Right? You're freed up from ministry better if single. Paul makes that case. I, th- I think that is part of what Paul's arguing here, especially in verses 32 to 34, right? Look at this. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord, but the married man concerned about things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin, she's concerned about things of the Lord, so she may be holy both in body and spirit, but the married woman is concerned about things of the world, how she may please her husband. He's like, I want you to be unburdened from married people concerns. Time is short, right? What do you do then, though, when this woman you're writing to writes back and isn't scared off? Okay, she was kind of scared off because the letter was a really intense thing to receive as a 19-year-old, but she rallied and stuck with me. But what do you do when the relationship continues and you realize that you found a woman who's effectively like, okay, Saudi Arabian jail cell, if that's what we're called to, we'll figure it out, as though not, right? I wasn't prepared for that, right? So I had a freakout. Several months later, we we're about to get engaged, and the freakout was totally wrapped up in what this passage says. Here's where my, where my mind went. What am I doing thinking about proposing to someone, right? She and I are going to end up putting on tacky sweaters at Christmas parties and taking photos with the Easter Bunny at the mall and hauling kids to suburban soccer games when they're entire cities, people groups that haven't heard the gospel. Are we about to waste our lives? So in the midst of that freakout, I called a mentor of mine. who graciously invited me over to his house at midnight, which, by the way, he was only able to do because his marriage was one of those beautiful ones in which he and his wife were living as though not married. And he talked me through it. He asked me, hey, do you want to marry Sarah? And he could hear in my answer that I really did. He said, hey, Sarah's a believer. That's the requirement according to verse 39. Believers are only supposed to marry other believers, period. She knows the life that you're open to living, recklessly sold out to the gospel, yet she's of the mindset that she wants to live that life with you. Yes, that's what she says. So then he looked at me and said, Tim, look at 1 Corinthians 7 here, right? You're free to marry her. You're not sinning by doing so. Marriage is a good gift from the Lord. Listen, that's just one story, right? There's not a one-size-fits-all way for everybody to work this out, which is why Paul emphasizes that he's giving an opinion here, not a command. He's not commanding people to stay single. I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. There are clear guardrails on either side, ditches to avoid. But within those guardrails, I know the anguish some of you have felt in wrestling through, should I get married or is it better for my, with my, for my walk with God if I stay single, right? Whatever you choose, though, whether singleness or marriage, the as-though-not nature of this time we're living in really ought to take a lot of the stress and heat off the decision. Here's why. Because if you don't get married, if you never get married, this passage is a reminder that you're not ultimately missing out. Any day now, in the grand scheme of things, we're all going to be part of the great wedding to come, the marriage that will make our earthly marriages look laughably insignificant in hindsight. What will you regret or feel that you missed out on on that wedding day when your bridegroom is literally the king of kings? On the other hand, if you do get married, this passage is a reminder hey, marriage isn't ultimately going to satisfy your desires. You're going to be living it as though not anyway, treasuring and cherishing this person at great expense to your own time and energy while not availing yourself of every drop of what you could theoretically try to squeeze out of that relationship for your own benefit. So it's not going to be all that different than if you would have stayed single, just a different set of joys and a different set of challenges during this time of distress. So that's on the distress, now finally on self-control. What about this popular Christian advice? If you don't have self-control, verse 9. If you're acting improperly, verse 36. If you're burning with passion, burning with desire, verse 9. Interpretation of that. If you just can't wait to have sex, then get married. What do we think? I'll tell you this, it's a humiliating and a terrifying feeling for a woman to learn that your husband more or less married you to effectively be a receptacle and an outlet for his sexual urges, and that he did so because he was schooled on that sort of advice. Men, women, the point of marriage is not for you to have an avenue to act out your sexual desires. The answer to your burning with lust is to develop self-control. Think about all the other fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. When young men and young women struggle with these qualities, we encourage them to grow, right? When they mess up and get impatient or unkind, it would never cross our minds to respond by telling them, bummer, seems like the patience and kindness fruit just didn't pop up on your tree, oh well. But for some reason with this one, self-control, We tell young people, especially young men, yeah, you better find a wife so your lack of self-control can be legitimized. As soon as we realize we're reading these verses that way, we should be stopping ourselves like, is that really right? Is that really what Paul's saying? Do you know how much self-control it takes to be a faithful husband? What do you think is going to make your self-control problem disappear when you get married? If anything, your lack of self-control is just going to harm more people. For example, no matter how much self-control I don't have or claim I don't have, if Sarah were to get paralyzed tomorrow, I'm going to need to find a way to go the rest of my life without sex and to be content in that. My sex drive won't be an excuse for any sin that I commit. And forget paralysis, honest married couples will tell you there are any number of reasons why you can't have sex for a while. Monthly cycle, recovery time after childbirth, illness, injury, travel to take care of an ailing relative. Friend, if you never learned self-control before getting married, what do you think is going to happen when you need self-control later? Besides, even if your spouse is willing and able to have sex with you, she doesn't deserve to be treated like an object that you can use for your own gratification. If that's how you view women, the last thing you need to do is to seek out a wife. Please don't. And y'all, <clears throat> I was shocked in the early days of marriage to find out that I had been lied to that marriage was gonna solve my self-control struggles. Like if anything, I, was, I remember writing in my journal, I remember it clear as day, marriage made the fight for self-control more intense. And here's why, somebody needs to hear this, okay? So listen, before our wedding day, <clears throat> I was more or less able to successfully block the possibility of sex out of my mind, right? We're just not doing that until we're married, period. Right? So when it's 2 p.m. and I find I'm thinking about it, just think about something else. Right? It's not happening tonight. There's no chance. We're not married. So I don't even go there in my mind. But then once we're married, when it's 2 p.m. and I find I'm thinking about it, now there's reason to hope for tonight. Right? It's theoretically possible. So I let my mind go there a little bit. Now what happens when you get home from work with all kinds of ideas only to be welcomed by a spouse who's in tears because of a conflict at work or with a family member or a friend, right? Now you've got to find a way, right, to exercise the sort of self-control that will totally lay aside all your hopes of sex from the past couple hours and be present with your spouse, empathetically engaging with her and what she's in the middle with right now, right? If you've never learned self-control though, if you just thought getting married was gonna fix it, you're gonna be a monster of a spouse. Right? not one that reflects the self-giving love of Christ for his church. But hold up, though. Okay, so if these verses aren't saying, if you have an active sex drive, find a spouse, then what are these verses saying? Right? We've got to deal with it. Right? If they don't have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. It's a fair question, right? But there's a critical piece that many miss here. Okay? We have to remember, these words are written in a context in which most unmarried people, almost all unmarried people, would have been assigned to someone already. Like from the time they hit puberty or before, they already know who the person is they're going to marry when they get married. It's been decided for them. It's been arranged. There's some evidence that even widows were required by Roman law to remarry in some kinds of places. They had like a three-year window. Right. In other words, there are very few people in Corinth receiving this letter and hearing this who are wanting to be married but didn't have somebody that they were already pledged to. This means, this isn't written to unattached people, telling them, hey, find somebody to sleep with. That's not it. It's written instead to Joe, who's been pledged to Susie since they were both 12 and now they're 18 and Christian and trying to figure out if they should get married or not. Right? That's a very different situation, right? And in light of all that, the phrase, if you don't have self-control, if they don't have self-control, right? Let's think through what that means. In all likelihood, these people addressed in verse nine, are maybe already starting to give in to sexual sin with the person that they're engaged to if they don't have self-control, right? So in verses 8 and 9, then they're, it's mostly like, most likely saying something like this. Hey, you've got a person that you've been told you're going to spend the rest of your life with. You already know who it is. Now you're not exercising self-control with that person. You guys are sleeping together maybe, though not yet married. Get married. Better to marry than to burn, And that's literally what it says, by the way, better to marry than to burn. Most translations add with desire or with passion, but it could very well be like burn in judgment. So in reality, these verses aren't super applicable to the sorts of people we normally apply them to today, at least not directly so. We normally preach these verses to any unattached person who has sexual urges and really wants to have sex. And we say, hey, find someone and get married so you can have sex with them and sanction your lust." This doesn't necessarily commend that at all. These verses are much more directly applicable today to a different situation in the modern-day church, namely the great number of Christian couples who are sleeping together, though not yet married. You and your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're planning to get married. You may even be engaged. Your your parents maybe want you to be engaged for two years to get the perfect venue and financial stability first. But this is a warning. Exercise self-control. And if you're having a hard time not giving in to sexual temptation with this person that you know you're going to marry, it's probably not wise to wait forever to go ahead and get married. Better to marry than to burn. The fact is, this passage doesn't dire- actually directly address the many single Christians today who are like, hey, I want to get married, but I don't have anybody to get married to. That's just not the situation Paul's addressing here. But, That is a great number of American Christians in their 20s and 30s and beyond today. So to that person, what can we say from this chapter? Andrew Wilson, I like what he has to say about this. He reads verses 21 and 22, actually, uh, which actually deal with slavery, and surmises that Paul today might say to the person who really wants to be married but doesn't yet have their person, he might say something like this. Hey, if you're single, don't let it trouble you. Don't let it concern you, You're married to the Lord, right? That said, if you get an opportunity to marry and that's what you really want, then sure, avail yourself of the opportunity, right? And I think there's wisdom in that. I think that might very well be what Paul might say today, right? If you're single, don't let it trouble you. You're married to the Lord. That said, if you get an opportunity to marry and that's what you really want, sure, avail yourself of the opportunity, right? To that person who's single and who wants to be married, we might also say, hey, don't get lulled into believing the myths. Sam Alberry, who's himself single uh, and a pastor, has written an excellent short book, highly recommend it, addressing seven common myths about singleness. One is singleness is too hard, or singleness requires a special calling, or singleness requires or means no intimacy, or singleness means no family. Or singleness hinders ministry, or singleness wastes your sexuality, or singleness is easy. Those messages are not true, despite how prevalent they are. And I'd encourage you to pick up that book if you're interested in looking more into any of those. But unmarried friend, who knows how long this season will be for you? I don't know. But listen, you're not playing JV while you wait. You're not playing JV right now. God's got something for you during this season. Don't miss it because you're moping over what you don't have. And I say that, yes, for your own fulfillment, but not just for your sake individually. We need you as a church to live into your calling during this season. We as a church need you to teach us, not only by doing stuff that you're freed up to do because you aren't married. There's some of that talked about in this text, but I'm talking more about the way you orient us to the age to come when we will be like you unattached to any other human in an exclusive sort of way. The big idea today is this, singleness is a good gift from God to be used for his purposes. There are greater goods than singleness, don't get me wrong, there are greater goods than marriage, neither is the greatest good, yet singleness is a good gift from God to be used for his purposes. Two final words, one to married folks, one to unmarried folks. Final words to the married folks about what we've seen here today. Let's not perpetuate this lie, married folks, that marriage is the normative experience, desired goal, and greatest good of every Christian. Instead, let's engage with single folks by cultivating deep and meaningful friendships. Our spouses aren't meant to be our everything, and when we act like they are, then single folks in the body of Christ particularly suffer from our insularity, Remember, our single brothers and sisters could all be in less than godly relationships right now if they wanted to be. But instead, they're clinging to the promise of Jesus that if they choose singleness over sin, even if it means forsaking a potential spouse and home and family, they've been promised by Jesus that God will replace what they've given up with a hundred times more. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields in this life. Not to mention what's coming in the life to come. Jesus promised them that. And part of what Jesus meant when he made that promise to them is that we, married folk, would be that for our brothers and sisters who remain single for the kingdom. That our homes would become their homes. That we would be their siblings and mothers and children. Let's be that for them. Let's not treat them as though they're stuck in the waiting room and can only become real members of our family once they get married. We've got a practical way, a very practical way, to express our family ties coming up with Thanksgiving and Christmas. You may have seen it on Thursday, you'll see it in the emails coming out this week. Look in your emails for the Guess Who's Coming to Dinner holiday edition, in which we've made it possible for you to say, okay, you just fill out the form, it's really easy to fill out. Our family has X number of seats in our home for Thanksgiving or for Christmas. Uh, Here's our, you know, here's what we're doing, here's what the, you know, we have this many pets, here's what's going on. Or on the other end, you have a place to fill out like, hey, I don't have a place to go for Thanksgiving or for Christmas and there's one of me or there's three of us will help match people to homes where they can experience family and home for the holidays. Our church has actually been really good about that in past years informally. We just want to make sure nobody slips through the cracks this year by formalizing the process. And so thanks to Deacon Mike Scott for taking the lead on initiating this. Uh, You'll see that coming out this week. Final word, though, to the single folks. Yes, there are some single folks who avoid marriage not for godly purposes, but for ungodly, selfish purposes. And if I were speaking this morning to a different group of single folks, I probably would have spent much more time addressing that very real problem. But actually, I don't sense that that's a major problem with our faithful single crew here at North Sub. For for us here, I just hope you hear the call this morning to live into what you're called to during this season, however long it may last. God has a reason that he has you single right now. Don't miss it because you're looking beyond this chapter wishing that you had what somebody else has. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the body of Christ and the beauty of young and old, single and married, uh, coming together across ethnic groups to worship you together and to love one another, to bear each other's burdens, to sharpen one another, to disciple one another, to grow each other. God, we want to be a community that increasingly reflects uh, your heart and your kingdom. May that be so here in our midst. Married folks, help us to uh, not perpetuate lies to our single sisters and brothers. Help uh, us to act like family with them. And to our single sisters and brothers, help them not to be living like they're in the waiting room right now, but help them to feel launched and empowered Uh, for what you've called them to during this season, however long it may last. In Jesus' name, amen.